0: Welcome to RVR's Life After Camp podcast. Learn about the camp and retreat ministries of RVR at rivervalleyranch.com. Enjoy. So a little earlier, I had to go back there and make sure Carl was okay. I was like, what in the world? Uh, He'll probably survive. Anyways, wow, that was awesome. That's beautiful. The dancing and everything, I just think that's like pretty on point, uh, especially as we talk about freedom this week. And tonight is no different. We're going to delve further in to freedom and how we get that freedom and so forth. And uh, I know this is like one of those, those things, once you're in a camp setting, a retreat setting, and like it's themed out and every, you get like to the third time you're like, we're still talking about freedom. What's going on here, right? Yeah, we are. And uh, hopefully you're seeing it built and you're understanding like as tonight, as we talk about the cost of freedom, about redemption, about what it took for us to get that, hopefully some of that will sink in maybe, maybe for the first time, this is coming alive for you. This understanding of the gospel. When I say gospel, I mean the good news of Jesus Christ what he did on the cross, that he didn't stay dead, but that he rose from the grave and that that was for you. And for me, that was to make us new. That was to make us, us different. I'm going to start in second Corinthians three, 16 through 18 tonight. And you're like, no, you're not starting with a funny story. Anyways, we'll get there. Just skip to, uh, the Bible real quick. Um, But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, Paul writes, the veil is taken away. Now for just a second, veils can symbolize all kinds of things. When people get married, a lot of times, like wedding veils used to be like over your face and the husband would remove the veil when it was time to kiss the bride and be like, you're not my fiance. No, I'm just kidding. That actually happened once in the Bible. Check out Jacob's story. He didn't find out till the morning. Like, do they not talk? Anyway, so whatever. The veil's there. You can't really see as good. Now, most brides don't do that now. they like, the veil's like an accessory that kind of hangs on the back here. Have you noticed? Because you got to see the bride's face and everybody's like, oh, you're so beautiful. Instead of like, oh, you're so Lacy. So, like, we've kind of switched that as a society. The veil serves the same purpose that your shutters do on your house, which literally sometimes aren't even the size of the windows and can't do anything. But we're like, we've always seen shutters. We're going to leave them there. Or those panes on the window, they're not individual. They used to be individual panes of glass, those little tic-tac-toe boards on your window. You know what I mean? Some of you don't have those now because people are realizing they're stupid. But usually they, had, like, they used to have like, different panes in them. Now it's all, like, one piece of glass. And so it's kind of pointless. That's kind of how the veil is today. But the veil used to mean something that came between someone and someone else. Like there was a semblance of this purity that this person couldn't access until they were under this commitment. And in the Bible times, before there was the veil of the bride and everything, there was this veil in the temple that kept them from the presence of God, but it wasn't really the veil that kept them from the presence of God. It was our sin. It was that warning label we talked about this morning. That kept people from being able to enter God's presence. And once a year to make atonement for the sins, this picturesque, symbolic atonement for the sins of the people, the high priest would have to enter between the veil a certain way. Like he couldn't just walk in the way he wants to. There were all these rules and he had like a rope tied to him with bells so that if he violated one of the rules, this is how serious God wanted it to look in front of the people. If he violated one of the rules, for instance, if he had alcohol in his system that day, not because drinking alcohol was forbidden, but it was forbidden for him that day. Like it was like everything about that day had to be perfect. He would just hit the ground like that. And they'd hear jingle, jingle, jingle. And it didn't mean the cat was coming around the corner. It meant they had to dig a hole. So, and they would pull the guy back out. Now, there's no record in any Jewish writings that a high priest was ever struck dead. These were warnings of God so that they would take precautions so that they didn't have that as like front page of the Jerusalem news or anything like that. <clears throat> so, into the temple they would go. Nobody else could go with them. The new priest who was going to become the high priest when he dies, like his son or whatever, he couldn't train him in advance. He had to know the rules, but he couldn't take him back there and show him the Ark of the Covenant. He couldn't show him any of that. And it's not like it is in Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you saw that. There's no ghosts inside that eat Nazis' faces off with the worst special effects known to man. (laughs) Like, come on. Spielberg. And it was a step up from Jaws. Like, I mean, just a few years later, like Jaws was scary to us growing up. But like now you look at it and you're like, why are they afraid of RoboShark? Anyway, so like, it's not scary. The Ark of the Covenant was sacred though. Nobody could touch it. It represented the presence of God. And when Jesus died on the cross, that veil was ripped from top to the bottom. Thick. It wasn't like this where they just like pull it and that sheet thing fell down a second ago. God wasn't like, pull the string. Like this was a thick veil. And God Himself ripped it from top to bottom, so nobody would be like, "Oh, huh, I bet Nate did that." He's pretty tall, so no, thirty feet tall, thirty feet. Just spit. All right. Did you see that? It's like in the light. Anyways, whatever. <clears throat> Get distracted sometimes by my own saliva. That's probably why they told me I had to speak on the stage this year instead of down there. Maybe somebody complained last year it was in their like form. I got spit on. <laughs> got the rona. No, I'm just kidding. No. I haven't had that yet, so please don't give it to me. All right, so anyways, rips it to symbolize we no longer have to come into God's presence through a high priest. We can come into God's presence anytime because of Jesus Christ. And it happened while Jesus was dying on the cross when he said, into your hands I commit my spirit, earthquake, sky going dark, veil ripping. I mean, that's a major graves opening. We could get into all that theological context. It's in Matthew. I mean, night of the living dead, but they weren't dead anymore. Night of the living, living. That's how God works, right? Um, So cool stuff going on there. But that veil has now been taken away. And from 70 AD on, shortly after Jesus went back to heaven, when Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome, They have not offered burnt sacrifices since then. It was as if God was like, no, 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 get the point. One sacrifice once and for all, it's done. Jesus is that sacrifice. Paul continues, now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The fact that he says now it's in light of what just happened So, hey, veil's been ripped. Now, the Spirit of the Lord, the Lord is spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There's freedom from the old ways and the shadow and the symbolism of trying to come to God a certain way, but always being kept distant from him because of this veil. Now that's gone. And we all who... With unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. Are being transformed into His image, with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There was a point when De- when uh, Moses received the Ten Commandments that he had been in the presence of God in a way that caused his face to glow like a glow stick. It wasn't like God cracked him first and shook him up or anything. That would be weird. But just being in God's presence, he was glowing and he knew the people wouldn't be able to handle it. So he had to put a veil over his face and he hid the glory of God for a time. And we're not supposed to do that anymore. We walk around having been in the presence of God with unveiled faces so that people can see not an outward luminous glow like a glow stick, but so that they can see the glow of God on us by the way we live and the way we love. And that takes us to a whole different playing field because people are like, what is up with that guy? What is up with the way they interact with each other? I don't have that in my relationships. I don't have that in my life. How can I have a little bit of that? And we're like, I'm glad you asked that question. And we're able to step in and show them who Christ is. This morning, I shared Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The answer to the warning label is simply to peel it off. And you've got permission from Jesus because of what Jesus did. It's not like the one on the mattress. Anybody ever afraid, like adults especially in here, afraid to tear off that mattress tag when you're by the mattress? Have you ever seen it? It like warns you not to do it, says it's illegal. <coughs> I don't know who, who, is the, who are the mattress police? Who are going to come in there and be like, all right, well, we searched your home and didn't find anything, but your mattress tag is missing. I'll be 30 to life. <laughs> I mean, no, like what? I don't even understand. Like the rebel in me wants to display the chalk box and rip off all the tags. Be like, I'm just coming over to your house. Like, hey, what kind of mattress do you have? I just want to look at it. We're looking in the market for a new one. I'd be like, mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> that's just because we're rebellious human beings, right? But we often, like we talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ a lot. We can often get kind of callous to it. We stop thinking of it as an actual event and something that actually happened to a real person who happened to be God at the same time. And we start to think about it as just, yeah, yeah, we're Christians, so we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The pain he went through, the stuff he went through— Medically, what happened in the garden of Gethsemane should have killed Jesus. And you think, wait, what happened in Gethsemane? Didn't the guy get like, ear cut off? How does that affect Jesus? No, no, no. Jesus swept blood. That means the capillaries that are in his forehead burst, which can only happen and, and actually come through the pores, it can only happen when the body is under some, such extreme stress that usually it causes an aneurysm or a stroke. And he didn't stroke out, and he didn't have an aneurysm, because he wasn't done yet. He wasn't finished. And so Jesus knelt in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, knowing what was about to happen. See, so he designed our bodies and he designed the pain receptors that we have. And he knew exactly how everything would go down. And yet he went through it. And he prayed for you. He prayed for those that will Believe. That's what he's thinking about when he's about to die is us. Yeah, because it was part of the mission all along. And then he's betrayed by one of the closest people to him on earth. And then all of his friends run off. And then one of his closest friends follows behind as if he's going to try to do something. But the whole time he's telling everybody he doesn't know Jesus. And then they take Jesus. And even though a guy's trying to free him, he gives him a choice between another guy and him. A guy who's not some random murderer who might've killed some Israelites. According to all the gospels, when you take it all together, Barabbas had killed Romans in an interaction. He was a hero of the people who wanted the Romans out. And here you got Jesus who rode in a week earlier on Palm Sunday and they want him to clear out the Romans and he doesn't do it. He goes in and chastises and rebukes the people in the temple. And they choose Barabbas. Barabbas is not a first name, by the way. Bar Abbas, it means son of the father. If you look in the NIV version, they use a couple older manuscripts for that text that actually contained his first name that says Jesus Barabbas. Jesus, son of the father, lowercase, or Jesus, son of the father, uppercase. It's a common name back then. And they choose the one who looks like the Messiah they want instead of the one who is the Messiah they need. And he gets free to them. And Pilate, hoping that they'll be satisfied by this, has Jesus beat within an inch of his life and tries to get the people to say that's enough, but they don't say that's enough. They want him crucified. What wrong has he done, Pilate says, but nonetheless, they want him crucified and he washes his hands of the whole thing. And they blindfold him and they beat him. And they say, if you're really Christ, tell us who hit you. And I'm thinking in my human capacity, oh, I would tell him. I'd be like, it's you, Billy blindfolded, just scare the snot out of them, right? Jesus doesn't answer them. He doesn't answer them. Because he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. It was time. And this morning we talked about the specific time, the empire he was going to come underneath so the gospel could go out in one language. The gospel could go out through all the roads and ports and harbors and everything. But now he was boiling it down to a specific time Day. Passover. And when you look at Passover, Passover took place because there was a time, a shadow of things to come, where God freed the slaves from Egypt through Moses. And the last plague, when Pharaoh won't listen anymore, when his heart is at its hardest, God tells them that you must put the blood of the sheep that you're going to eat that night above the doorpost and on the sides of the doorpost. Almost like a cross. And that God himself, there's a lot of misreadings. People are like the angel of death comes and No, it says God, read it, read Exodus, go back through it. It says God will pass over. It was God's wrath that was on the people. And no one would be harmed in the houses that had the blood. It would be overlooked. And they practiced this year after year looking back at Passover. And Jesus took Passover with his disciples. And I feel like we dumb it down some today because <clears throat> we may call it the Lord's Supper. We may call it communion. We are communing together. It is a supper that the Lord had with his people. If you look at the painting, we call it the last supper. It's definitely not the last supper that Jesus is going to have. That one's in heaven, the marriage supper of the lamb. And the last supper is kind of weird because like, it's like a sitcom where no one ever sits on that one side of the table. You ever notice that? You got like eight people all around three sides of the table and no one's going to sit there. Do you like each other that much? But they're arguing in the sitcom. I don't get it. I think like the, the untold word of what Jesus said that's not in scripture is, everybody wants in this picture, get on my side of the table, squeeze in. Anyway, no, I'm just kidding. But you know, the, the painting that's in every grandma's dining room. <coughs> Along with that one where he's like, I was like, get that creepy picture. Down. My God didn't look like that. My God was beat within an inch of his life. And yet he still put a foot in front of the next one to get to the cross to die for me anyways I get I get messed up with the sometimes weird looking images of Jesus that we got all right especially when he's blue eyed I'm like what how many Jewish people have you met anyways the artists need to do some homework we'll go away from that for a second in Luke chapter 22 We read about this gathering of Jesus with his disciples to take what we will later call communion, but what they just knew as the Last Supper. As a matter of fact, when Jesus said, as often as you do this, eat this bread and drink this cup, do it until the Lord comes, most likely they understood in that moment to be every time Passover comes back around, it has new meaning and new semblance. Now, early Christians out of their fervor and love for Jesus, started taking it on a regular basis as part of their worship. And Paul gave instructions about it, but it was always part of Passover because it is exactly the same thing that the shadow of Passover was about, <clears throat> that the blood would be applied to the posts and that God's wrath could pass over us and we would not have to die. That's the beauty of it. I think sometimes, as as Christians, we we divorce communion from Passover, and we lose some of that rich symbolism that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John the Baptist said. As a matter of fact, you know where the Passover. Anybody have any idea where the Passover lambs, the ones they would use for Passover, were raised after Israel was established as a country? Do you have any idea where the shepherds that that watched them where they kept those flocks. There's only one part of the country that kept them. Bethlehem. Right outside of Bethlehem. Most likely the shepherds that ended up seeing Jesus in the manger were ones that were charged with raising, because it was in mass, tons of them, lamb that were for the Passover when they would find a firstborn male lamb without blemish and without spot, they would wrap it tightly in swaddling cloths and place it in a manger to where it could be inspected. And so when he said, this will be a sign unto you, the angel said, you'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. They knew there was something special about this baby, that he would be that sacrifice that he was that lamb being prepared in exactly the way they prepared the other lambs. It's so tied from Christmas to Easter, completely tied to Passover. And so we take communion. And before you get bent out of frame, I am not going to serve communion tonight because I know everybody has different rules and bylaws and whatever of who can administer communion and whatnot. And I'm not here to say any of those are bad or anything like that. So I'm just going to talk about it. All right. Just so you know, I just want, I just wanted the youth pastors to be able to pay attention without being like, what's about to happen? Anyways, nobody filmed this. I'm going to lose my job. Anyways. And we have rules all around communion in different churches and stuff because we take it so seriously. It's not because we're like, oh, this is all for us. It's because we take it seriously. Christians have done this one thing for thousands of years. And Jews have done the shadow of it for even longer in Passover. And so they would have the wine. This is grape juice, just so you know. This is the bread. They would have unleavened bread because that night before Passover, reason why we do unleavened bread, that's probably a little bit of leaven and pita, so don't hold me to that. Um, as close as I could find at Walmart, all right? <clears throat> so they would have unleavened bread because they didn't have time that night because they were gonna have to leave and leave Egypt to even let the bread rise because you have to like make the dough and sit it to the side for a while. And so that's why we still do unleavened bread because it's tied <laughs> to Passover, right? And so he's sitting there, they're all expecting the script to be normal, just like your Christmas or any holiday gathering you have that you have traditions for. They're expecting the traditions to stay the same. And Jesus starts flipping the script on some of the stuff that happens there, which is a little bit different than what they're used to. It says in verse 14, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, not sitting in the chairs, Leonardo da Vinci painted. All right. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. I want you to picture what's happening here, okay? So we're not going to divide it among ourselves, but you know what I mean. So he takes the cup. He says, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Wait a second. He already passed the cup around. How much is left after 12 guys drink out of a cup? See, here's the thing. There's more than one cup. By the first century, Jews had a a practice where they would actually have four cups of wine with the meal. Before you think the disciples are getting a little bit tipsy, they had about one-sixteenth of the alcohol content of modern wine, just enough to keep it from going bad. They didn't have refrigeration. They needed that alcohol to kill the germs in there so bacteria wouldn't form. So they'd ferment it just enough. Four cups with the meal. He's already passed around the first cup. And then the second cup he says, is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will not go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him." And they begin to question among themselves, which of them? It might be who would do this. Let's pause there for a second. With the information we've been given, we're assuming that there's been two cups so far in the meal. Judas is gonna leave and he's gonna leave and then they're gonna leave as well. But here's the thing. We're not given every detail that's happening there. It's actually not this first and second cup that we're seeing in the story. We're actually seeing the second and third cup. The first cup was drank before the meal, before they started eating together. I hope you're following this, all right? Before they're eating together, the first cup happens. And then when the meal starts, the second cup happens, then the third cup, and finally to close out the meal, you would have the fourth cup. They all have different meanings to them. As a matter of fact, Jesus should have read this right here in Exodus 6, 6 through 7. This is what they would read. They would say, therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. When they would say that, they would drink the first cup called the cup of sanctification. And they, this would talk about God setting them apart and pulling them out of Egypt. That's what they would do. And Jesus was supposed to read that. and he, It's not recorded that he stayed on script at all about the Passover. As a matter of fact, he kind of flipped the script and added to it. Then they would read, I will free you from being slaves to them. That's the next part of it. Referencing the second cup, which is the cup of blessing. Some people call it the cup of plagues. It's like a bittersweet cup. Plagues, bad things would have to happen in order to bless the Israelites. And so they would read this part about being freed and it was the cup of blessing that they would take right as they began the meal. The meal would then continue and they would eat the bread next and start on the third cup, which is what Jesus was doing. Check out what the third cup is called. The cup of redemption. That they had been redeemed. This is the cup he said is the new covenant between you and I. That's kind of cool to me. Like in a really deep, profound way, he was saying, this is the cup of redemption. And they would read the next part. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. That Christ would stretch his arms out for us and take the full judgment of God on him instead of us to gain our redemption is significant, But not just that, they got up after that meal and left and never finished the fourth cup, never closed the Passover meal out. The last part is I will take you as my own people and I'll be your God. This part was known as the cup of acceptance, that he would accept us, but not just acceptance that way. The people who call this one the cup of plagues say it's acceptance of the bad that would happen in order to gain the redemption. Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane, and do you remember what he prayed? He said, Lord, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, let it pass. Why did he use the analogy of a cup? They hadn't finished it. And Jesus was accepting what would have to happen to him in order to fulfill the Passover as the Passover lamb. He gets to the cross and they offer him wine mixed with gall, which would dull his senses. And he refused it from them. But toward the end of his life on the cross, he said, I thirst. And vinegar mixed with wine was offered to him. And he drank from it and said, it is finished. What is finished? The Passover is complete. Your freedom has been bought. I am now accepting what had to happen to me to gain your redemption. And when you look at the Bible, some of you guys might just think it's a collection of stories. Like, it's so deep. There's so many layers. And you might even think, wow, that's really cool. I never thought of that before. But it's deeper than that. And I'm sure there are layers I haven't even thought of. It's not just the Passover layer. It's not just the blood and the, the body that it represents. It's not just the four cups analogy that they had that they would have understood in the first century, but something else that happened by the first century too that I got to share with you that's really cool. Let me move these for a second. Just have the third cup. By the first century, girls had just a little bit more rights than they did before. Before it was like, I picked this guy for you. We talked to his parents. You're marrying him. By the first century when Jesus walked the earth, they at least had the right of refusal. Still didn't pick their own dude, but the right of refusal. And the way that they would ask officially is that the boy would invite the girl to his father's home. They would eat a meal together and at the end of that meal, he would slide a cup of wine across the table to her and say, this is a covenant between you and I. If you drink from this cup, I will go to my father's house and prepare a room for you. Only my father knows when the room is prepared and when he tells me I will come and get you and you'll live with me forever. Does this sound familiar? That's what Jesus promised his disciples. So the awkwardness of this moment in not reading anything from Exodus 6 like you're supposed to do, Jesus does something as awkward as me coming up to Sparrow and wanting to go to Walmart with him, but instead of, hey, you want to drive to Walmart with me, I drop to my knees and take his hand and say, will you accompany me to Walmart? He's going to pull his hand back because in our culture, this means something different than will you go with me to Walmart? And Jesus is doing what's akin to a marriage proposal in his day to his disciples. This, before the redemption that would take place to make you part of the bride of Christ, before you could become part of the bride of Christ, there had to be a proposal. And Jesus proposed to the church the night before his death. And now he's making a place for you so he can come again and receive you to himself. And some of you have never said, I do, to Jesus. I know that sounds odd. You're like, what? He's a man, I'm a guy, or whatever whatever you're thinking out there. It's symbolic. He calls us his friends. He calls us adopted into his family. He calls us his bride. He's thinking of every human relationship that we have on an intimate level to tell us what he thinks about us. He even says we're his own body. Like every, like you probably care about yourself. You probably care about your family. One day you'll care about your kids. You'll care about your spouse. Like this is everything God is doing is communicating to you that he cares about you. Even if you just love animals and he's like, I'm a shepherd and you're like my little sheep. I mean, he's using every relationship we can think of that we care about to represent us. And some of you might've never said I do to Jesus. And when you say, I do to Jesus, you're saying, I can't do this on my own. That label is on me that holds me back. I'm sinking in my own sin. And no matter how hard I try to get out, I can't get out of it on my own. I need you to apply the blood to the doors of my heart so that I can have my sin overlooked and be with you forever. Would you bow your heads with me tonight? with every head bowed and every eye closed, and please don't look around. I'm going to step off the stage in case you hear me walking around or anything, but while everybody's got their heads bowed and eyes closed, and I just want to look at the tops of heads for just a second. This might not mean anything to you. Maybe you've been trying to tune it out all, not all weekend. I totally get that. There may be somebody around you that it does mean quite a, bit of, quite a deal to. There's the chance of people listening to the sound of my voice right now that there's some of you who have never surrendered your life to Jesus. I'm not talking about praying a prayer when you were four, although if that was genuine, that's real. I'm talking about have you turned from your sins, not because you figured out how to be better, not because you decided not to do them anymore, but because you couldn't get out of them on your own. You turned from your sins and turned to Jesus, the only one who can save you. And said, My life is yours. You turned that over. And I'm not talking about saying words in a specific order. It's not a magic spell. It's an attitude of our heart to surrender our lives to Him who paid His life for us. And Jesus, make no mistake about it, Jesus didn't stub His toe for you or break His leg for you. Jesus gave His life for you and every drop of blood for you. He doesn't want to redeem you so He can have your Sunday morning or five minutes in the morning. Our prayers before meals. He paid the price for your entire life. So he wants it all. And if you're willing to give it all to him, he will unlock the potential that you have to be who he created you to be. A worshiper of him, a follower of him and somebody who's transformed into the image of God's son. That he'll start to work out those things that aren't like Christ. You'll still mess up, but you'll know that you're walking in the forgiveness of God. If that's you and you'd say tonight, Nate, I've not done that. I need to do that. I I would like to do that to turn my life over to Jesus. Or maybe you'll just at least admit to me I haven't done that. And you're not sure if you want to do that yet. I just want to see who God's dealing with. So nobody else looking around. If that's you, I simply want you to make eye contact with me and not to look back down. I just want to see who God's dealing with right now. I'm not going to embarrass you or anything, I promise. Okay, I see you right here and back there, way back there, and over there, right here. And if I don't point at you, I see a few of you there, way back there. If I don't point at you, God sees you. So just keep looking up for a second. I want to have a conversation with you. I see you right here. Awesome. And over here, way back there, way back there, buddy. I see you right here. Those of you looking at me, keep looking at me for a second. You're at least admitting at this point that you haven't done that and that that's something you need to do. This next part's going to sound harder, and it sounds harder on purpose. Not because you have to do anything, but because he wants it all. This is kind of to help you have assurance afterwards to know, you know what, I didn't have to do that, but I did it anyway because I gave Jesus everything because it'd be easy to do some kind of secret prayer in our seat and bow your head and close your eyes and nobody know you made a decision and just go on living like you lived before. But if you're, if you're counting the cost here and saying, you know what? It's worth it no matter what. I'm gonna ask you to do something. And if you don't do it, I'm not gonna come up to you and say, why didn't you stand? I'm not gonna go to your youth leader and say, hey, you should talk to that one or pray for that. I, it's just gonna be between me, you, and God. If you decide to stay seated. Usually about half the people that look at me don't stand up. So a couple things are going to happen in just a second. I'm going to count to three, not because there's anything magic about three, but because it's just kind of a launch point, a decision point. And if you want Christ to change your life, I want to ask you to stand to your feet. If you haven't surrendered to him, repented of your sins, to just stand to your feet where you're at. I'm not going to ask you a bunch of questions or make you talk. All right. But just to stand to your feet where you're at. So that's going to happen. Some of you will choose to do that probably. Secondly, some of you might decide to stay in your seat and that's okay. If you're not ready to give him everything, this isn't your moment to stand. This is really count the cost. Are you ready to give him everything? The third thing that's going to happen when I count to three, I'm going to ask that everybody, when I say three, open their eyes in here. Because scripture says, if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God's raised for the dead, you can be saved. That confession of the mouth is basically saying publicly, I'm with Jesus. It's not some quiet confession. It's not talking about the sinner's prayer in that verse. And then I'll tell you how you can know for sure they have a relationship with God. You might think, do I have to stand up to do that? No. Scripturally, no. Absolutely you can accept Christ anywhere, anytime. But could you really say in your heart, when you have doubts two weeks from now, that I gave Jesus everything if I wasn't even really willing to stand up in my, from my seat? The lies you're hearing right now in your head of everybody's going to judge you, everybody's going to think something, people think I'm already a Christian, whatever you're hearing, push those out because it only matters what God thinks about you. And they're not true anyway. Most people will be excited for you. There might be a couple judgmental people in here. That's okay. God loves them too. He died for that judgmentalism and hopefully they can, he can work that out of their life with sanctification. But if you're ready to follow Jesus with everything and you haven't done that on the count of three, stand to your feet. And I won't wait. I won't count again. One, two, there's already somebody standing. Three, stand to your feet if that's you. And those of you in here who haven't opened your eyes, you weren't listening to instructions, all right? So I ask you to look, not to embarrass these guys and girls, but because I think it's mega important that we hold them accountable, that you know who they are. Somebody in here knows who each person is who's standing. If you know one of these individuals, raise your hand. All right. If you're standing, I'm not going to embarrass you, but if you're standing and you don't know anybody here, somehow you got into RVR. I don't know how, maybe you didn't even pay. Maybe you snuck on. We don't have name tags or lanyards or anything. I think it'd be possible. I'd try it. I'm just kidding. (laughs) If if that's you standing, raise your hand. You don't know anybody else here. Okay. So we have an accountability network built into this. How you follow Jesus is as simple as what I just said. Repent of your sins, surrender your life to him. So I'm going to ask you not to hide from people because you're already standing. They can see you. But to block out distractions, just close your eyes right where you are, just standing there. And you can use your own words to talk to God, to give him, to give him your life, to repent of your sins, or you can borrow my words, but they got to be yours. If you borrow them, think about what you're saying and mean that and give that over to God. You could say something like this or use your own words, God, God. Today, I ask you for forgiveness. I want to turn away from my sin and I need your help to do it. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for raising from the dead to beat death for me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. Thank you for saving me. And help me to tell others what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Life After Camp episode. Discover all of the year-round adventures at RVR and find out how you can support our ministry at rivervalleyranch.com. Thanks.